Sonic States Roscom. Hello, uh, welcome everybody. Um, we are here on uh, Sonic Talk number 37, going live on Thursday, March the 8th. 37 is quite a significant number. Apparently it's the number of slots in a European roulette table. It's the number of the French department André Loire. And it's uh, a recurring trademark in the films of Kevin Smith, who did, um, what did he do? Did he Clarks? And Dave, uh, does it have any significance to you? Uh, yeah, I had a band called Terminal 37. That's uh, Dave Spears from G-Force, uh, maker of fine plug-in instruments. A band called, um, when was that? Was that sort of quite recent, or, um... No, it was in the 80s. We weren't very good, but we did, we did actually record at the Roundhouse. Oh, oh, interesting. Not with John? Yes. No, We'd have been there then. before his before, time. Before my time. Okay, yeah. and, uh, well, which brings me next to, uh, John Musgrave, who's with us this week as well. How are you, John? I'm well, thank you. Good afternoon. Producer, engineer, uh, journalist, and, uh, sort of reviewer. Um, John, last time I saw you was at Sounds Expo, where you were on the uh, demo panel for uh, Future ma Music magazine. I was. It started yes. out, I walked past a couple of times, you looked quite interested, and then after about two hours, when I just before I left, I noticed your, your attention seemed to be wandering a bit. In fact, you, yeah. mou you mouthed some words to me as I walked past that I thought, hmm, I <laughs> the entire audience might have just seen that. Did you get, did you get um, handed out of office after that, or was it... Uh, is it all right? I, I, I can't remember what I mouthed. I was just desperate to go to the toilet. You I mouthed, remember rightly. this is rubbish. <laughs> no, that wasn't me. No, sure? uh, maybe not, no. So, uh, was there anything good? Did, uh, did you get any demo surprises, or was it just a bit too it, much of it? It's, it, it was, yeah, sonically, it's all pretty good these days. So that's, that's the interesting thing. It's just that I think we got a bit bored repeating ourselves after about an hour, because um, you just end up saying the same things, which is, if you want something to sound good, you've got to concentrate on the sounds, and you've got to make them as good as you can. And, um, you know, the great thing about having recorded on computers is you can, you know, you avoid all the sort of noise and all the other issues you had to struggle with in the past, but it doesn't mean that the idea is any better. So you've got a lot of good-sounding demos that aren't necessarily great of, and will never be. A lot of great-sounding bad songs. Mm. Potentially, yes. Some of it was good. Some of it was good. But it's yeah. difficult to criticise that, that, you know, criticise it sonically, apart from, you know, you've got to concentrate on your original idea if you get in the drift, you know. Yeah, so more time spent on the song, less time on the sound would, might yeah. be better in this. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose so. And uh, we've also got Mark Tinley with us here once again. How are you doing, Mark? Hi, not too bad. I've just been thinking about 37 while you've been um, chatting away there, and, and I've remembered something. Um... And I think I saw this on a Darren Brown program. Now, th uh, 37 is the number that people will automatically think of. And it's something to do with psychology. When you say to someone, pick a number between 1 and 50, everyone apparently picks 37. Um, I think partly because the, uh, the 3 is sort of right in the middle of between uh, 0 and 50 for the, for the decimal number. And then they don't want to pick three because they've already picked a three, and they don't want to pick five because it's too obvious. So they go the other way and they pick thirty-seven. Ah, oh, well, that's something. I, I remember. Isn't it the answer to the meaning of life, or was that forty-two? Forty-two. Ah, okay. 42. Well, perhaps that's wrong. That's a that's mm -hmm. a, a reference to Hitchhock, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. For those who perhaps were wondering what on earth I'm talking about. <laughs> did anyone go to a Sands Expo? Or was it just me and John Musgrave? John, just a quick one. What did you make of the show? It was, did it was it small? Did it have more of a vibe than usual? It, it, it feels small, I have to say, and um, I was just thinking about this at the time and, and since when you mentioned it, I just feel that it should they should maybe incorporate more musical stuff into it and make it a bit of a more widespread show, well, a sort of wider base of stuff, really. 
It's very high tech, isn't it? It's high tech and DJ. It's not really guitarist at all. It's sort of. It's interesting you say high tech and DJ because you know it wasn't DJ a few years ago. It was you know high tech, and it, it just feels it just feels that it needs to to broaden its base a bit to, to, to me. You know, it's great from a from a journalist point of view because it's sort of very <laughs> very. You can just sort of wander around. We sort of wandered around, and it was very leisurely. And it's, I sort of thought, oh, I wish all shows were like this because. You know, usually we're sort of herring from one end of a giant aircraft hangar-sized hall to the other to get our appointments, and this was just sort of yeah. wander about and sort of, oh, Andy, let's film this. This looks interesting. Uh, having said that, we were very surprised to see, did anyone see the Tenorion video that we shot? Um, Peter Peck, who's uh, our mm. UK Yamaha contact, um, they had a beautiful yellow, sort of very un-Yamaha-like yellow stand. It looked like kind of the colours of Barry, Barry Sheen, who's just like a 70s motorcycle racer. He used to wear green and yellow leather. And uh, this stand was green and yellow, uh, and it had a couple of sort of uh, Japanese-type dolly birds on it, and they were showing their MM6, which is a new kind of budget synth, which has seemed quite good value. It's like about £400, I'm not sure what that is in dollars, for a kind of essentially a motif engine. But then he kind of whipped out this uh, Tenorion. He had an actual Tenorion, which is um, a kind of... We've only seen in prototype and on sort of uh, kind of research-type stuff that nobody's been able to tell us about, but apparently it came into the country the night before... And he's just been kind of totally addicted to it. But essentially, you know, the Tenorion thing, I mean, you must watch the video because it's very hard to explain, but it's like a tablet, isn't it? I mean, so it's 16 by 16 matrix of 16-step um, sequencing. And you've got 16 multi-timbral capabilities, plus you've got this kind of other aspect, which is the kind of light show aspect. So you can use it to create loads of patterns, and it's got, uh, and again, it's got the motif engine in it. It's handheld, battery-powered, and it just looks really funky and kind of, like you might want to spend a bit of time with it. I, I thought it looked a bit like kind of Pong once things got, got going, you know, sort of sliding white bars of stuff either side. And yeah, it's, it's like it, that, isn't it? It's like those old sort 8-bit video games, Pong, yeah. Breakout, that kind of thing. And, it, and it, I think the thing is that, 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 that we've seen various sort of controller-type things appear, but nothing, this has got, it sounds contained in it as well. So it's a self-contained unit, which you can sit in the corner in a dark room, probably, I would have thought. For hours. And, uh, for hours. And that's this great idea. I mean, it, is, it does look really addictive, and um, I'm glad they've, they've run with it and sort of... Do you think it's going to lead different... to any kind of, you know, a new generation of musical creation? Because, I mean, obviously, it's just going to end up with a load of 16-step um, phrases. I mean, I don't know. Do you think it's going to have an influence? You can load sounds in, it said, didn't, he said, it's didn't got he? A smart, it's got samples, yeah. yeah you can load samples into it. Well, that's, that, that's to me, that's the big difference. That's the thing that will really, really opens it up, because you can stick anything in it. Right, so you could put a load of loops in it. So it'd be like a hardware Ableton. Yeah. Wow. Or a hardware Fruity Loops. It really reminded me of Fruity Loops. And I was sort of thinking, yeah, yeah, I've seen it all before. And then he said, and then you can do this bounce thing. And this light started bouncing up and down, and it started playing sort of more random things. And I was like, wow, okay, I want one. Well, he was saying, when I was talking to him, he was saying that, you know, in Japan, it's kind of seen much more as a sort of ambient music generator. Whereas here you could see people kind of real sort of step sequencer nuts kind of getting right into it and maybe breakbeat nuts. I mean, you could really, could see it having a great impact perhaps. But Dave, what do you think? Is it the future of music? I thought it was brilliant. <clears throat> I didn't realise that the sounds were actually contained within it, mm. um, which is quite, I suppose it's quite neat. It's, it, it, it just sort of, um, I cast my mind back to when we released the Fat Boy and we went kind of hunting around for distribution and, Everybody kind of said, oh, yeah, the thing is, you know, controllers don't really sell. And then I kind of look at this and go, well, <laughs> it's a pretty good progression from those very, very early days. 
Yeah, and it just seems like such a kind of tangential. As I said to Peter, I said, this is completely bonkers. You know, I mean, it's just sort of so, such an odd concept. Did he say it was motif, the motif engine inside it? Yeah, I think yeah. it's got the basic motif sound set. I mean, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, because I'm not very familiar with their stuff, but presumably it's, it means there are sounds of a, of a, you know, a, a usable standard in there. Yeah. And it's presumably... It's the video out, though, wouldn't yeah, yeah, I mean, it would probably add an awful lot to the price, because, I mean, he was saying it as a performance tool, but, I mean, if you were using it in anything other than a very tiny kind of cafe, nobody would be able to see what you were doing, really. I mean, if at the back of Wembley Stadium, it would be just a sort of little blob with occasional flashing light on it you wouldn't really see the detail so you'd need you know to get because the visual effects are really quite sort of um they, they sort of draw you in i mean it's a bit like watching a, a real fire you know there's just sort of yeah. it just, you just look at it and kind of go ooh, it's like a sort of mesmerizing sequence of lights i guess it's a bit like the chaos pad isn't it the, the new chaos pad 3 which has got a similar um grid of lights is not as big but the the rather than the glowing bits on the chaos pad 3 it's got kind of actual um, distinct LED position, so you can create yeah. animations on it. But I got the impression that you could um, that you could generate a, a visual pattern which would have a sound, uh, you know, which would create a sound. So I mean, as opposed to just creating the patterns and it creating the visuals, both the, the other way around as well. So it, it, he he did something where it kind of drew a whole line of, of dots moving across the screen. Yeah. And that created the sound, and that's the thing that's different, isn't it? That it that it actually you can create something that looks funny or looks cool, and that's well. I suppose uh, you could you, know, you could almost think because I mean, like those kind of um, Alesis Air synths and the synthesizer in the Chaos Pad. This is quantized essentially, isn't it? Because it's got mm. it must be quantized to chromatic steps rather than just being sort of fairly free. So it's going to be easier to create useful tune type stuff. I wonder if you can quantize things the other way as well, so you can actually quantize things to useful musical s scales rather than 16 notes across a keyboard. A oh, sort of pentatonic scale or something. That might be, yeah. yeah. Well, who knows? I mean, presumably it's early days yet, so all of these things they might well take on board. Um, I mean, looking at the way he used it as well, it was kind of, there's a little ro a scroll wheel that just kind of moved you back. It looked kind of very, if, if you got your head around the way it moved, it looked like you could move around it fairly quickly. I th I'd use it for programming drums. I'd stick dr all different drums on those, um, you know, lines of LEDs and then throw the bounce thing at it and it will probably create a new musical genre by itself, won't but Yeah, it? we're going to look forward to that. I think it's coming out later this year. Um, they say it's going to be in the region of 500 quid, which I guess is going to be, what, about a 1,000 bucks, maybe 900 bucks. The Dead President Society is basically a collection of kind of um, musical, electronic musical instrument design heavyweights. And uh, what they're actually called are, that the, the group's name was born out of the fact that a number of the members were formerly presidents of electronic music product companies that died, <laughs> namely uh, Dave Smith, Tom Oberheim, uh, Roger Lynn, and uh, and, and a variety of others. So what happens, these guys meet every Thursday in a, in a cafe, in a sort of coffee bar in San Francisco Bay Area, and just kind of shoot the shoot the wind about, um, you know, instrument design or what have you. And uh, the reason I found this is because I was looking on Dave, the Dave uh, Smith website at uh, where Boomchick came from, because I was just doing a bit of research for our Top 20 Synths program. And um, this came up, and it was sort of, apparently the, the, the Boomchick kind of came out of discussions that were held at this, uh, the, the, at one of these meetings. And I just thought, well, what a fascinating group of people. Do you think this is real, though? Because I've been studying this photograph a lot. And I, I'm a bit worried that this this young chap here, the Jaron Lanier, I reckon he's made the whole thing up, and it's a sort of a virtual reality thing. 
Because I'm worried, I'm worried about the coffee cups. If you look at the picture and you look at all those different coffee cups, right. everyone in the picture has got a, a different style of cup. So I reckon they're all cardboard cutouts of them, and they've been stuck in from other photos. <laughs> it's because a conspiracy if they're, if they're theory. A, it is. If they're in a if they're in a coffee bar, they'd all be drinking out the same style of cup. Very true. Would they not? Uh, no, it, it is quite hip in the US. It's quite hip to uh, take your own cup. Oh, do you oh, think it? they've got? It's like they've got their own tankards. Do you think they're engraved? Yeah, it's exactly the same kind Gosh, of. Gosh, imagine yeah. that. Get those. Get that Tom Oberheim and the the uh, um, tankard on eBay. You know, we'll nip up there and see if we can <laughs> nick some coffee cups. Dave Smith and Tom Oberheim's coffee cup. We'll stick them on eBay and see what we could get for them. So let me just run through the names for you. There's uh, a guy called John Channing, who's a composer and inventor of FM synthesis, no less. Uh, John Lazaro, who is a uh, designer of the network protocol that uh, uh, Apple Macs OS X uses to send MIDI reliably over networks. Ingrid and Roger Lynn, who, you know, we know who they are. Roger Lynn, obviously the designer of MPC and uh, early drum machines. A chap called Max, Max Matthews, who's apparently known as the father of computer music, having developed the fundamental algorithms of computer music synthesis in, the Bell, in Bell Labs in the 50s. Uh, Keith McMillan is a designer of influential electronic musical instruments and sound stuff. Tom Oberheim, we know. Dave Smith, we know. And a chap called Dave Wessel, who is director of CNMAT, which is the Centre for New Music and Audio Technologies, I mean, I wonder how they kind of finally got together. Do you think, you know, you have to be nominated once you've, once you've fronted a company that's sort of gone down the toilet, you're eligible? Or uh, maybe, maybe they met for, uh, via meetup.com. Have you seen that website? No, I haven't. Do you think so? Um, you can go, you go in and you sort of join and tell them your interests and where you live, and then you can create groups of, um, you know, where people go and meet up who have similar interests. It's quite good, actually. A, it makes kind of... It sort of puts in perspective how, what a small and niche area of, uh, of, of you know, technology we, we're involved in. And it must presumably be the same with all sorts of areas of technology. But, and the fact that they all live in the same area just seems such a sort of massive coincidence. So it's like Silicon Valley for synth designers. Imagine if we could get the podcast from there. Do you think anybody would actually understand what most of them are talking about? Or do you think they're actually quite sort of <laughs> down-to-earth chaps? I mean, Don, actually, I forgot to mention Don Buchler as well. I mean, now he's a fairly serious, um, well, he's a he's a lecturer in electronic music as well as designing synthesizers i was quite interested to see that the the, the sort of one of the reasons for the boom chip which you mentioned which i also had a look at after that um one of his reasons for developing it in the first place was he was wanting to get away from software synth development and wanting to make something sort of real and tangible again yeah well i can understand so i suspect i suspect there's a lot of a lot of chat along those lines around the table isn't there but i mean you could imagine that as a think tank you know, they, they should presumably some. They should have a kind of uh, a corporate representation, and people should be giving them rings. You know, because I mean, just just in terms of getting musical instruments designed, it just seems like they they're pretty much all the people who make who've made and are responsible for some of the real milestone landmark. Not including Bob Moo, but pretty much everybody else is there, aren't they? I think Barclays the link. I think that's probably where um everybody meet. In fact, weirdly enough, you know, when we had the office in Santa Cruz years ago, um. We were in a coffee shop and turned around, and there was Roger Lynn. Maybe it's the and same coffee like, shop. Oh, blimey. Uh, no, this was a very small one. Didn't uh. look as luxe as this. But, um, and obviously John Chowning, he was there. You know, and yep, Yamaha obviously picked up the FM stuff from his research. I think that was at Stanford. The new MM6 music production synthesizer from Yamaha. Code name. Me. Oh, the 
61 note portable synthesizer with incredible sonic power based on motive tone generation real-time audio control usb connectivity and computer integration bundled with qs audio and midi sequencing software create produce perform with affordable and versatile mm6 music production synthesizer from Okay, that was another ad from our sponsors, uh, Yamaha UK. We're very pleased to have them aboard, and if you want to help us show them appreciation, just click on the links mentioned in the ad. And also, don't forget to check out the Tenori on uh, news item in our recent coverage of Sounds Expo. Incidentally, there are a couple of other things at the the Sounds Expo, one of which I didn't actually get to hear unfortunately i don't know if you did which is these new krk monitors did you get into no i didn't no um what were those they're called the expose e8b's they're a brand new design from you know from scratch right but i ended up chatting to the, the guy from krk they're, they're really expensive they're like three and a half grand a pair good lord which is a lot of money and then and they're and they're also they're designed to be kind of near-field, mid-field monitors, but they're also really big. They're about, I think, I think about 18, something, something, you know, towards like, you know, 15 inches high or maybe a bit more. So they're quite large for near-fields. Right, no, I didn't get to hear them. They did have a very impressive kind of um, industrial strength listening booth. Every time I went past, it was busy, and, and then, then the show closed, so I didn't get to hear them. But, um, um, yeah, three and a half grand for a pair of monitors. Wow, that is expensive, but presumably they, money. they must be good. Yeah. KRK stuff does have a sort of... Um, Kind of quite a cachet. I mean, we listened to some in that um, Future Music listening test, didn't we? Yeah. And they weren't yeah. bad, weren't half bad. They were very good, yeah. very good. But they were, th- they were a thousand pounds. These, well, you know, maximum thousand pounds. This is... That's quite a considerable leap, isn't it? Yeah, big leap. The other thing I saw was um, Korg have extended their um, sound set on the Legacy Edition, haven't they? The Digital Edition. That They've added all of the T-Series sounds into the M1. Oh, what, the T1 um, and T3 and... Yeah. Oh, that's a good plan. I mean, I suppose it must be quite easy because they're all sort of Rompler based, and once you've got yeah. the kind of the uh, the the software for the uh, synth architecture in there, it's not going to be that difficult to do. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the best things that they did with the Wave Station when they first put that out was give you all of the ROM cards for it and all of the RAM cards, so you had all of those sounds, and a lot of them weren't very easy to get hold of. So, I never I never got into Wave Stations. Dave, did you get into any Wave Station stuff? Yeah, we had the AD for a little while, and the SR. The SR was the sort of one with God, I think that had about 500-odd sounds in it at the time. That was quite nice. I know there's a really nice... There's a noble strings in the SR that's kind of particularly particularly yep. wide and luscious. But that's yep. all I know. I never really got into SR. I did... I used to have the O1W before that, the M1, and that was kind of where my Korg, you know, workstation stuff, that's the, the experience I've had with it. Because it's, it's wavetable, isn't it? Yeah. Chris, yeah. Chris was so into that whole wavetable thing. Um... He worked on a product for... Do you remember Cheetah? Yes, I do. Yeah, I made a drum machine, didn't I? Yeah, yeah and um, I used to have an MS6, which was a little six-voice mono synth. I'm not even sure whether this was released, but it was called an MS800. I'm looking at it now. It's a tiny little half-rack thing. And uh, Chris did all the presets on that. And the most fantastic feature it had is that whenever you did any editing at all, you couldn't hear anything. <laughs> Bit so of an oversight, perhaps. Well, it was like editing, yeah. p- editing blind. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> Editing deaf. You'd write it into a patch, yeah. and then only then could you hear it. And that was an oh MS... That was Cheetah, was it? Yeah, MS-800, I'm looking at I it. I do oh, remember an yeah. MS-800. I, I, the MS-6 I had, um, I loved it, actually. I used it on quite a lot of stuff, and it had some really complicated... You could set it up multi-timberly and everything, but it died. And I remember sending it off to a, um, uh, a repair shop, 
that went bust. And I never saw it again. And it was really annoying because I used to use it quite a lot. It had, it was, it was, it wasn't bad. And it had Curtis chips in it as well, which is, you know, yeah. and it didn't cost very much. But, uh, it was one of those things that you had to pro program through a, uh, you know, a two digit LCD, which was, well, was no LED in fact. So it was yeah. a bit of a nightmare. Like. Well, the thing was all that legacy stuff, you know, the Korg legacy collection, you know, it makes sense of it for a lot of people. It, it makes sense of the wave, the, the wave station because it's much easier to, to program mm. via, via a software, you know, interface. And that's the one thing that they've kind of really got. And it, it seems like they can, they can just keep adding back catalogue to it for, by the sounds of it. I don't know what, they just did the Monopoly, didn't they? Yeah. Mm. And I don't that's know, I one. mean, what else would you like to see on the, uh, on the legacy collection from Korg? I'd like to see that, yeah, that 3300 would be quite Is nice that one of those ones that's fully polyphonic, poly, polysynths? Yeah. Yeah, there was only about 40, I think there was 40, between 40 and 50 of them made. And that was on so eBay, was it? That yeah. did look really nice. That was, uh, was it Hans Schultz or Klaus Schultz? Uh, Clash Schultz. Clash Schultz, it was his, there was a picture of him. And maybe they'll get one of those on the go, but I mean, Mark, are you a Korg synth fan? Would you like to see anything specific on the Legacy Collection added? Mm, no, not particularly. I mean, I had a Korg Poly 6, is it, or something? Yeah, they've yeah, done an that. Analog thing. They've done that one. And apparently no, it's, it's better. That, that is very good. It's a very good sounding synth. Well, it was all about the chorus, wasn't it? The chorus on the call, on the policy really was wide. particularly good. Um, it's like the Juno 106, which had a particularly good chorus, which I've got standing up in the wall over there because a couple of the voice cards are gone, which is a real shame. I'll tell you what would be nice on the call. What's that? The DV800, little duophonic thing in the early days. I think it was known as the Maxi Korg in the US. That would be really nice. You know, it was like a sort of vertical front panel. Right. Um, below the keys, as it were. And the filter wasn't called a filter, it was called a traveller. Or something very strange. It was brilliant because you couldn't, um, you had the sort of resonance and you obviously had the filter cut off and there was a little notch on the two sliders so that you couldn't cross them over at any point. You could spread them apart and bring them together but you could never cross them over and people used to saw off the little notch. Oh right, so what would that give you? That would ban reject presumably or what? what? Yeah, yeah, allegedly. Yeah, or I something. Think it, was, it was pretty limited. I mean there wasn't any, um, you know, it wasn't self-oscillating. Oh, so, but it had a dual mode filter, so a high pass and a low pass kind of yeah, opposing. Yeah, it was very slick. Well, Korg, if you're listening, this, consider this some market research, eh? There's two people <laughs> who want one. Um, yes, I mean, talking of physical modelling, hey, there's a smooth link, eh? Mark sent me a, um, he was very keen that we should, we should bring this into the podcast, and it's, it's you go to lego.com, basically, and uh, you can download a kind of 3D modelling Lego programme where you've got, I think there's two hundred several hundred types of lego bricks and you can make all these models and i did download it um i have to say though um it was it was like a kind of really bad dos port it just didn't see it was very clunky and i kind of lost lost uh, lost impetus a bit Do, have you managed to make anything exciting with it mm, i've made a few cars right i sit down with my with my one-year-old on my knee and he sits there and he points at bricks and things and we drag them in to the space and we've made a few cars but I think the coolest thing about it is that once you've actually made something, you can then just order the bricks in a custom... They send it to you in a custom sort of package with with all the bricks that you use to make... And your instructions you know, the model. as well. Yeah, and the instructions. That, that is quite that's cool. That brilliant. is quite a cool thing. So absolutely brilliant. I mean, imagine if you could do the same thing with kind of virtual breadboards. So, you know, you had like breadboards being the old way that you, you, you'd uh, prototype circuit boards. So you could build yourself some kind of mad oscillator or whatever and then send that off to somebody and they could send it to you either in software or, you know, something. That would be kind of an interesting concept. Wow, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Circuit bending, you could do your, your circuit bending in there, couldn't you? You could just drag chips onto a, a breadboard and link them all up and then... 
But, I mean, surely that must be how they model things anyway. Like, people like Yamaha must have programs like that running, mustn't they? Your stuff's modelled. How does it work? Uh, no, ours is, you know, you rip the components apart and measure everything about a trillion times. That's the way oh, really? So you actually physically model the individual component modelling, so... Yeah. So presumably that must be sort of ter- a bit distressing because if you find a perfect example of the thing you're trying to model and then you just basically destroy it in the name of research. Uh, no, we've never done that. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's all gone back together nicely. That's part. That's a prerequisite. If anyone who gets the job, it's like this must go back together again properly. Thank you. Mm. But you know, really, it's just measuring, 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 and measuring. Well, so I mean, you've done a Moog, haven't you? So did you completely dissemble a Moog and measure every resistor and every transistor and every capacitor and everything in there? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's. I mean, that's why okay, our stuff so, takes so long. And then you've modelled all that, and it's in a circuit board, is it? Yeah. So why I'm can't mental. I? Why can't I just change all the circuit around and? fiddle around with it. I mean, could I have a version <laughs> of that that I could circuit bend? I, I, what, in, what I find interesting is, is the sort of translation between, you know, you've got a physical circuit in front of you, and then what, the, what its representation is in code. I mean, d- presumably it's, you know, they're, they're, you don't bother kind of visually modelling any of it, you just kind of have, you know, a, a, a 3K resistor object and a, you know, whatever it may be. I mean, is that, is that kind of how it works? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I, 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 I have to say, I don't really get involved in that side of things. That's down to the coders themselves. Yeah, we'll, well, work, we'll, we'll work on the GUI side of things, and then when it comes together, you know, my job is basically just to AB against the original. And you know, but there's you know, an awful lot of work in optimization, and that's the real key. I mean, you could do mm. what Mark's saying, but, you know, you'd need a bloody mega, mega machine, and it wouldn't mm. be particularly um, lean. Right. I mean, in, in terms of people who can physically model audio circuits, there can't be many of those mm. in the world. I mean, is there a sort of bulletin board where you can, there's like three of them, and if one of them hasn't got a job, you can go and get them? I mean, there can't be many of them. <laughs> no, which is why you need to hang on to them when right. you find them. So <laughs> do they become superstars? <laughs> if there's uh, one that doesn't yeah. have a job, it's probably not that great, right? Uh, no, or very awkward to work with. <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. But back, back on this Lego thing... You must go to golego.de. These are friends of ours who do animation in Lego, and they do that. They've done that uh, ghost, you know, the Dance of the Dead, and they've done. Oh, it I know what you mean. Yeah, I've and seen some of those. Absolutely brilliant. Oh, there's a whole spate of things on YouTube, isn't there? Of animating Lego people doing kind of disco dancing to various videos. Is that the these sort of guys thing? Are, well, these guys are the kings of it. They really, really are the kings of it. Yeah. Dave, do you know what they use to animate it? Uh, yeah, I stop motion. Right. Which is brilliant. I did exactly the same with Playmobil here, but um, it's it's brilliant. Literally, just hit the space bar whenever you want to take a snap. You can hook it yeah. straight up to your Mac. You can even, on the new laptops, you can even use a little built-in camera. And it's free. As is Virtual Lego. So if you want to download, it's, I think, what, it's about 20 meg download. I mean, it's a bit clunky. It took forever to load, instantiating all the different brick models. Oh, it does. Yeah, it does. I thought, I only loaded it once, so does it take that every time you do it? Okay. I think it must collect some bricks from the internet when you load it the first time. Lego's just brilliant. It is brilliant. Yeah, I'll agree there. It was one of those lovely moments in the studio where the part just suddenly clicked and everyone was dancing around. Sonic stage. So you can hear there how the two parts don't conflict. There are a huge number of samples on that record. We double-tracked the drums, so there was a second drum track on there. The beginnings of affordable digital recording. Sonic State. 
www.ghostbusters.com Going solo. If what you're writing is just explaining some kind of like facet of the software, then it's like the piece of music that's been written is more explaining the machine than it is like your personality. Going solo. A couple of weeks ago, it came in that, that uh, State Senator Carl Kruger, who's State of New uh, Senator for New York State, um, wants to ban people wearing iPods while they're kind of commuting on foot and crossing busy roads and what have you. I just thirty years the Walkman's been around, <laughs> and and Discman, and suddenly the iPod. Whoa, you know. No, do you crazy. Think What's he going on about? Apparently, I was listening to uh, Twit, um, which is a tech not this week in tech, which is Leo Laporte program. Um, and he was saying that uh, basically this guy is renowned for bringing up stupid bills and to get to get promotion uh, publicity for himself. Then they never right. get through. We should stop talking about it now. I think they should ban deaf people as well, then, shouldn't they? Because they can't hear either. Well, that's yeah. No, well, <laughs> if you take this, if you take the argument to its fullest conclusion, I suppose that's true. You know, but I mean, which obviously is kind of ridiculous. But um, saying exactly that, then you don't deserve to cross the road. I don't know. I mean, because I, I I used to do a lot of cycling, and I didn't. I never used to listen to the radio or anything when I was cycling because I, I just I I want to know what's going on around me. You know, because in in case there is somebody who does a short beep of a horn that I happen to miss a particularly loud piece of music, or you know, I think it's important. You you need to be aware of your environment, and I think perhaps they've got they've got a point to a degree, but I think it's it's not really something you should legislate for. I think there was someone in 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 the news story. Had, 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 there was a quote from someone saying, "Well, you don't use your ears when you're crossing the road." I think the quote was, "You only use your eyes." I right. think some yeah, people right. do that because <laughs> I think different people use different things. There's that whole NLP thing, isn't there? And some people are visual, some people are auditory, and some people are tactile. And I can't drive a car with music on. I can't do it because right. I, I'm a very audio person or auditory person, and I have to be able to hear what the engine's doing, and I tend to sort of double-check whether this car's alongside me with my ears. Yeah. So I feel like I'm completely, you know, like like one of my senses obviously switched off if I'm listening to music, okay. and I, it makes me very nervous driver. I think some, if somebody's a visual person, then it's not going to make any difference to them whether they've got something going on in their ears or not, because their main sense would be visual, or if somebody's tactile, they're going to be, you know, not going to know anything until the truck actually hits them up. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really fascinating. It's funny Mark saying about that. My missus is exactly the same. No music in the car at all. She just can't do it. Can't deal with it. It gets all stressy. Whereas when we used to, you know, tour with bands and stuff like that, whenever you get to a new city, the first thing me and a mate would do is just put on the Walkman, load of John Barry music or something, and just go out and walk. Because I love the epicness of, you know, A, a new city, and B, this kind of huge soundscape going on in your head. Wow. That sounds mm. like fun, actually. Mm. Walking just round. Just make, sure, make sure you look before you cross over a road, right? And don't do it in New York. Sonic. State. Dot com. We're just down to the Digi003, which um, is another digital design interface, which is kind of building on the Digi002. Um, we put a news item up it, uh, about it, and we saw um, that it was there was a prototype of, uh, at Sounds Expo, but uh, unfortunately we couldn't get clearance to do a film piece on it because it wasn't, you know, the final finish and the knobs weren't the same and what have you. So unfortunately we couldn't get that scoop, but we may well be going to uh, Digi Design next week to have a bit of a personal tour and see what it's what it is. But as far as I can tell, and I, I may be misreading this. Not, they don't seem to be going on about how great the new Meet Mike preamps or anything hardware of it is. They just seem to be bundling a whole load of new plugins with it. This is really interesting. I don't know if any of you guys are Digi Design regular Digi Design users, but 
I keep a quite a close eye on the user conference because it's quite a good place to find out what people think. And they've been talking, you know, the sort of users have been talking about the O3 for probably two years consistently, you know, without break. When's it going to come? What's it going to be like? And the comments on the, on the website are astonishing. Uh, you know, um, we've waited ages for this, and it's basically not very good. Um, but so, why would they do that? I mean, because, I mean, the, one of the major criticisms of the O2 and the O1 were that my camps, you know, weren't that great. And you should, they would have, wouldn't they have fixed that? It seemed like that would be one of the things that you'd kind of look to if that was the, one of the major criticisms. Well, strangely enough, in, in the process of investigating this, I came across an American company. I don't know if you've heard of this company called Black Lion Audio, no. a boutique electronics company. And what they do is retrofit mainstream interfaces with better electronics. And the Digi02 is one of the ones that they do. Oh, really? And what they do, oh. they do the Digi002, they do um, Motu 2408, I think. Yeah. And one other one, I can't remember what the other one was that they work on. And, um, and what they do to Digi002 is replace the mic preamp stage, that line input stage and mic amp stage, and also replace the clocking stage in, inside the unit. And that has a massively uh, dramatic effect on the sound. Is it an expensive retrofit, then? I mean, is it... $450. Of... Really? Well, that seems wow. incredibly yeah. reasonable, because, I mean, what? What's a 002 was, what, $1,500 or something, a 1000 bucks? Something like that, yeah. So yeah. you could kind of get more out of your... It's like, you know, it's like a kind of, um, you know, custom shop version of... But it's interesting, and what, what seems to be the consistent comment from them is that the thing that a lot of these, these um, interfaces in that price bracket are let down by is the clocking is the jitter rates are so high that, you know, and that's the one thing you can definitely improve on. You have to, you have to ship it and everything, and it's, you know, you have to kind of, it, is a, it really is like a cottage industry. It's not, you know. Well, I don't think shipping anything is a problem with anything DigiDesign anyway, and I'm going to be the voice of gloom here, but I bought um, a Control 24 for Duran Duran, which we took to the south of France. By the time we got that back, it was broken. Um, we had to ship it back because there was something wrong with the power supply, and it was doing all sorts of weird things. So they sent us a new one, which is now broken. Uh, we bought a DigiDesign 002 rack, which went wrong. <laughs> Something went wrong with the power supply. We had to send that back. It's come back again, and it's now broken again. Uh, oh dear. We've got uh, DigiDesign 002, which is also broken. Did I say I've got the rack and a 002. Both of them are broken. And it's always something to do with the power supply and the power rails, and it goes mm. wrong, and you send it back, and they're meant to, re you know, they replaced it with some, you know, they, I think they recalled some of them and replaced mm. them, the parts in it, but it still doesn't work properly, and it just goes offline all the time, the one I've got here, mm, which is a rack. Problem. Yeah, that's and the other And the other one's just, you know, toast, basically, so... Mm. Well, I must admit, my visit to Digidine next week is looking more and more uh, like it's going to be an enjoyable experience. <laughs> but maybe I should just give them your number if you've got problems, because I, I used to have a four-track tr four Pro Tools system uh, for a long time, uh, and you know that, I never had any trouble with that. And I also have got an M-Box, an original M-Box, mm. um, and I've not had any problems with that. I mean, I don't use it an enormous amount, but... I've got an M-Box, and it's broken. <laughs> Maybe you've got some sort of weird kind of um, charge in your fingers, you know, like one know. of those static people. Uh, Maybe I have. I don't know. I think really what's interesting, I mean, coming back to the, the, the sort of product as a whole, is what's interesting about it is that the people that use um, native systems and want to use a Pro Tools software 
have probably moved on since the Digio One first appeared. You know, I was a very early purchaser of a Digio One, and at the time it was great. But now my computer can do so much more that I don't really want that level of interface to run Pro Tools LE on anymore. I want a much better interface and still want to run Pro Tools LE. And, yeah. and they haven't really brought anything out to fit into that slot yet. You know, I mean, there really should be a, a sort of fifteen hundred um, pound, you know, two and a half thousand dollar unit that is really high quality, really genuinely high quality that you can run native Pro Tools on. And a lot of the people on the site, basically, a lot of the, a lot of the guys on the site are saying, why can't we have an HD system without the DSP in it? So basically, an HD um, rack. Uh, converters and an HD card, but no requirement to have a DSP on it, and no requirement to use TDM. Just we could just use a native and RTAS. Yeah, like, and they uh, haven't done anything like that. But so, do, so do we think this this 003 is going to be a kind of hit? You get like three grand's worth of um, of plugins and stuff, and you know because they've been selling the the MIDI production toolkit and all these sort of plugin bundles and Air instruments, which seems to me to be quite a kind of uh, an additional value that we kind of forget. Yeah. Is part of the deal, so I mean that's quite They're an really interesting good. bundle. Bundle. They are really good. Those those instruments. Yeah. That so looks like them, you get... them trying to keep up with Logic Audio. Just... Well, it's a different thing. It's it's allowing it's giving them more more instruments because I mean, but that, their instruments are seen as additions, whereas Logic, you know, don't bring out an instrument to add to Logic. They'd have to bring out a new version of Logic. So it's kind of it's just a more modular approach, I would say. True. Hopefully, they've addressed some of the issues, but it doesn't sound like they've kind of significantly upgraded the. My camps, which is a shame because I think that was an opportunity that perhaps they should have taken. It's got Ada out I/O as well, so you could always whack a, a, another set of my camps on it, <laughs> you know, if that's what you want for recording. I wanted to mention something. We're recording this podcast this time, and um, uh, unfortunately, all my my M audio died because it's the one I dropped in the puddle on the way to Nam, and uh, I came to use it last week and it was broken, and. Uh, and this week, um, we've been sent some of these Zoom H4 handy recorders to try it at Mesa, and I'm recording the podcast on this. Have you seen these Zoom H4? It's quite nice. No, it's got it those sounds, I think I know what it is, though. It's got, those, uh, it's got a pair of mics on the top, kind of like that posh Sony um, recorder, but it's much, much lower cost than that. And, uh, How much are they? These, I think they're about 300 bucks, 200, 200 quid. They're re- and they've got... Um, wow. But what they've got, because, I mean, the thing that makes them good is they've got these... Um, Neutric dual format connectors, so you can plug a balanced, a, um, balanced XLR or a balanced jack in the back. So it's got a bit of weight and substance to it. Or you can record via the stereo mic. So for podcasting and stuff, they look like they're going to be really good. So this is the first test. I, I've still yet to actually take the audio off this. And they've also got limiters and compression built in. That's optional. Oh, so yeah. Quite a nice little unit, from what I can see. SonicState.com. All right, guys. Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to hang up and start editing now, see if, how it works on this beautiful Zoom device. Uh, thank you, Dave Spears, once again. Thank you. And John Musgrave, thank you. Cheers. And Mark Tinley, thank you very much. You're welcome. Well, uh, the more eagle-eared amongst you may actually realise that it's not, in fact, episode 37 this week. It's 36. I don't know where that came from. I had a bit of a brain lapse there, but uh, I'll tell you what, let's turn it into a bit of fun. So first person to ring in and leave me an answer phone message with their uh, contact details, email, and any sort of comment uh, gets a Sonic State t-shirt. How about that? Get on the phones and give us a ring. You can contact us using Skype. Uh, we've got a handle, Sonic Talk, or uh, some Skype in numbers. So we've got one in the US, which is... 
312-376-8089 or if you're outside the US just do plus one three one two three seven six eight 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 zero eight nine. We've got a European number in London, which is 0207-870-8616. Again, if you're outside the UK, plus 44-207-870-8616. Or you can email us on sonictalk at sonicstate.com. You can send us uh, MP3 comments or whatever. Um, please feel free to do so. We'd love to hear from you. Sonic. Sonic. State. Sonic. State. Sonic. 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 Sonic